Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. As a general philosophy of teaching the Bible, I come from the viewpoint, the basic supposition, that the entire Bible has one author and is telling one story. And so the more we dig into the Old Testament, I hope you see how it influences and foreshadows things in the New Testament. It's interesting that on Sunday mornings, as we approach Matthew 24, we're going to bump into the idea of the time of trouble, such as never was, ever would be again. Tribulation the Great, Philipsus Megas, all that stuff is coming up. We're going to start touching on it this coming Sunday. And far too much of what I read and hear and see on the internet or prophecy programs or I'm trying not to name names, but programs that are um, prophecy-influenced from a completely Gentile perspective. There, I circumlocuted that well. They have a tendency to ignore the fact that this time of trouble, which, as I've mentioned several times, is called the time of Jacob's trouble, a time of trouble that Daniel predicts that's going to happen to Daniel's people, that this time of trouble coming isn't coming for no reason at all. It isn't happening on a whim. It's not something that suddenly the New Testament authors came up with. It's not something that Jesus introduced out of whole cloth that he got here on the planet and said, hey, you know what, let's have a time of trouble. That, in fact, it's foreshadowed all the way through the Old Testament and that it's not without cause It is a justifiable time of trouble because it is a time of punishment and a time of separating Israel away from the world again and refining them so that they come out changed, they come out refined, they come out like gold, they come out purged by the things that they will have to go through. And here again in Amos 2, which is where we're going to be tonight, we're going to see God do the same thing that he did with Hosea. Although he told Hosea that he was going to punish Israel and Judah, although he, through Ezekiel, called the northern tribes and the southern tribes two erring sisters reaching all the way back to Egypt, even though the prophets speak with one voice across the board and speak of God's punishment of Israel, they do all speak of a restoration, a restitution of Israel, a regathering of all the tribes, a replanting of Israel back in their land with Jerusalem as their capital again. And the punishment is for a cause. The punishment is for a reason. And Hosea goes into God's reasons. God even says, I have a case against you. And he lays out his case. And he's going to do the same thing here in Amos 2. Through the prophets, God is going to say, this is what I have against Judah and Israel. And I really do have a case against them. They really are genuinely guilty. And the whole middle section of the book of Amos is God demonstrating their genuine guilt. And there are things that he says he's going to do to them that he has already done to them, like the Assyrian captivity, like the Babylonian captivity. But there are also moments of restoration, like the return to rebuild the temple and the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. But then even after that, we're going to see Sunday morning Jesus saying that that temple, there's not one stone that's going to be left on another. And then we know the story of 70 AD and Titus and the Romans come in and the temple's destroyed again. And then there's this period that we're living in right now that we talked about Sunday morning, the times of the Gentiles. 
And God is going to turn his attention again at some point to Israel. And when he turns his attention to them again, his purpose is to complete the punishment. This is part of what we saw in the six things that have to happen in Daniel's 70 weeks, that the prophecy has to come to its fulfillment. It's going to wrap up the prophecy. The end result is bringing in everlasting righteousness and once again establishing, consecrating the holiest place, the holy of holies. All of that is still coming. And so when we get Sunday morning to Matthew 24 and we start talking about the day of the Lord, that kind of language, the time of trouble, I want you to understand, I want you to see that when Jesus talked about it, and when it does come in the future, it is coming because of all this stuff we've been reading from the prophets. The prophets have been saying that this is the pattern that God follows in his dealings with national Israel. And their pattern, of course, is every time they get comfortable, and every time he protects them, gives them comfort from all their enemies, and gives them food, takes care of them, they get rebellious. They become self-sufficient. And so they start rebelling against God and chasing after their foreign gods and doing all that. And then God brings punishment against them, and that punishment turns them, causes them to repent. That punishment drives them back to God, back to their knees. National repentance, a change, and then God makes it okay again. And then a generation or two passes. And those generations that don't remember what it was like when God delivered them from the Philistines or the Amorites, and they don't remember. They're the next generation, the comfortable generation. They're Generation X within Israel. They're the ones who come along and have had it good their whole lives, and so it's easy for them to turn their backs on God. And that cycle continues and continues and continues right up to the time of Jesus. Jesus himself is on the planet, and yet again, Israel rebels. Rebels to the degree that they even kill the prince of life. And at that point, God is going to scatter them around the world, out of their land, knock down the temple. There's that punishment. So... The cycle is obvious. The cycle is clear. The cycle is Israel becomes self-sufficient. Israel rebels. Israel forgets God's rules and laws. Israel chases other gods. Israel falls into all kinds of corruption and sin and sexual sin. And, and then God punishes them. And then they do better for a little while. And then they get comfortable. And then they sin again. And then he punishes them. And they sin again. And he punishes them. And where does this cycle end? How does this cycle end? Well, this is why this stuff that we're going to be talking about in the next few weeks on Sunday mornings, eschatologically, is so important. Because the difference between all of God's dealings in history with Israel and what he's going to do next time, the difference is next time he changes them from within. Next time he puts his spirit within them. Next time he implements the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Next time he puts his law in their hearts. Next time there is an actual change from within so that Israel sees their Savior, recognizes him, says what Jesus said, you won't see me again till you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. When he comes next time and his feet touch the Mount of Olives, Mount of Olives splits in half, Israel is going to look on him whom they have pierced and weep like a mother over her only child. That's different. That's the change. That's the the important difference between every other episode of God's punishment and the ultimate punishment. The ultimate punishment, Jesus says, is going to be worse than anything that's ever happened on the planet. So it's like the culmination of all God's judgments and punishments against Israel. So that's going to happen. But the end result of it is going to be establishing a kingdom that lasts a thousand years, that ushers in the era of that's called the New Age. After you get through chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, you get to 21, and you get to the New Age, and New Jerusalem coming down from heaven, and the establishment of 
the final kingdom that will never be done away with ever again, where righteousness dwells eternally. And in the new Jerusalem, you still have 12 gates that are named after the 12 tribes of Israel. The foundations, the 12 foundations, are built on and named after the 12 apostles, but the gates still belong to Israel, and the name is still New Jerusalem. That's all kind of a clue. So do you see the the big panorama of Bible history going on here? What we're reading right here in Amos tonight is that point where God is saying, I'm going to punish you, and there's going to be an immediate sort of temporal punishment. He is going to drive Judah into Babylon. He is going to scatter the northern tribes into Assyria. That's all about to happen, but that's not enough. That's not enough to get them to turn, to change, to genuinely repent from within. He has to do something bigger than that, greater than that, more significant than that. He has to change Israel the way that he changed Jeff or the way that he changed Dwight. He has to change them from within, and then the final restoration of Israel can happen. You get all that? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's like really big picture stuff. But I want you to see the big picture because I think the fault that happens in so much of modern eschatology is that it fails to see that big picture. And so it sees what's coming eschatologically. It sees the time of trouble, great tribulation, all that stuff. Sees it as a church thing because they don't understand the big historical panorama of what the Bible teaches historically. So they see it through a very narrow lens and therefore don't seem to fully comprehend it. But God is laying out his case time and time again that he is just in punishing Israel. And that's where we're starting tonight. Last week, we got as far as chapter 2, verse 3. And really, I read chapter 2, verse 1, 2, and 3 rather quickly right as we were finishing. I don't understand why chapter 2 starts where it does. If it had been me setting out chapters, I would have included the first three verses of chapter 12 into chapter 1. Because chapter 1 is God determining punishments against Gentile nations. And certainly Moab is a Gentile nation. And so chapter 2, verse 1 starts with God doling out his predictions of punishment against Moab. But that's part of a continuation of what we saw last week. God predicting woe and trouble for the Gentile nations, specifically those nations that surround Israel, that have had interactions with Israel, who have been at war with Israel and with each other. And they have broken the eternal covenant. They have broken the covenant that God made in the time of Noah. And we looked at that last week where God said all mankind is restricted from shedding blood. And sure enough, every human nation since then has been at war with each other and shedding blood. And so God holds them all guilty. So chapter 2, verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. What you need to know here is that in all of Middle East history, both biblical history and secular history, grave robbing or disturbing a grave is a real serious offense. It's a social offense, but it's also a religious offense. Pretty much every religion agrees with that. You don't go into a grave, and that's exactly what the king of Moab and his army did. He burned the bones of the king of Edom and apparently burned them so badly, he burned them down to lime. It's possible that this incursion is written about in 2 Kings 3, 26 and 27. That's a particular war that happened between Moab and Edom. It doesn't mention there the burning of the bones, but here it's stated as a historical fact. So because he did that, God says, I will send fire upon Moab, and it will consume the citadels or the fortresses of Kirioth, and Moab will die amid the tumult with war cries and the sound of a trumpet. Some of this actually did happen, by the way. In history, we see the destruction, ultimately, 
the Assyrians fell on Moab under Tiglath-Pileser III. And so God here, and here's an important point, so I need to make it, and I'll be making it again in the weeks to come. Here we have God taking first-person responsibility for a foreign army attacking a foreign army, and then God used that attack in order to punish the people who lost the war, and God takes personal credit for it. Notice the language that he uses. I will send fire upon Moab, and it, the fire I send, will consume the fortresses of Kiriath, and Moab will die amid the tumult with war cries and sound of a trumpet. So there's a war, and there's trumpets of war, and there are the cries of war, and sure enough, Moab is destroyed, and God says, I did that. Even though he didn't do it by like a whirlwind or fire coming down from heaven or the earth opening up and like he did with Korah and his band. Instead, what you've got is God saying, I am so in control of human history that when one kingdom wipes out another kingdom, that's me punishing the kingdom that got wiped out. He takes credit for it. You get that? Hang on to that. That'll become important in the weeks to come. Just file that in your brain that when God pours out his punishment, sometimes he does it directly, sometimes he does it through secondary causes like armies, especially foreign armies or foreign kings. But it's still God doing it. You got that? Okay. So I will also cut off the judge from her midst. That means I'm going to get rid of the leaders. I'm going to slay all her princes with him, says the Lord. So All of Moab's going to be destroyed, not just physically destroyed, but the leadership is going to be destroyed. The judges and the princes will all be destroyed. And that takes us to verse 4, when God turns his attention to Judah. Now, up until this point, through all of chapter 1, God has been holding these foreign nations accountable for their bloodshed, for their wars, but he hasn't held them accountable for specifically breaking his law. He does say that they broke that eternal covenant thing that he made with all mankind, where all mankind is responsible and guilty in front of him. But when he gets to Judah, he gets much more specific and says, now they broke my law. And God holds Israel and Judah more responsible than the Gentile nations. Because, as he's going to say, out of all the nations on the earth, you're the only one that I chose. You're the only one that I have intimate relationship with. You're the only one that I know, says the King James. And so that makes them even more responsible, which makes them even more guilty. Because they are the people that God specifically chose out of all the people on the earth. They're the only ones that he formed a covenant with at Mount Sinai. They're the nation that actually had the grand advantage of having prophets and having Moses, having leaders directly from God, hearing from God, God's word given to them, the covenant that Moses brought to them with the rules. This is how I expect you to act and I expect you to live. This is what my theocracy will look like and how it will operate. No other nation had that advantage. And so God holds Judah really accountable. Now, all the way through chapter 1, as I told you, he uses this this phrase for three and even for four. And I told you that with each of these nations, he lists one thing that they did wrong that he's holding them accountable for because it seems to be the ultimate thing they did, the one where they really crossed the line. I've got you on three, but that fourth one, now I'm coming after you. But by the time he gets to Israel... He goes ahead and lists seven things. For the Gentile nations, one apiece is good. He gets to Israel and holds them much, much more accountable because they have much, much more revelation. And so they have much, much more accountability before God. And that ought to be a warning, by the way, to all of us. Certainly we of this generation, this age, this time, have a much, much more complete revelation of God and his word. And so we have a higher level of accountability. 
I think God would be well within his rights to just kind of wipe America off the map just based on, look at all the access you had to my word. Look at all the access you had. Go to any hotel and open a drawer and the Gideons will have plopped a Bible in there. Turn on the TV, turn on the radio, go to the internet. You have so much access to my word. And what have you done with it? And so anyway, God holds Judah and Israel really particularly responsible, unlike the whole rest of the world. And that is why, again, the language of God's judgment against Israel permeates the Old Testament and the New Testament and biblical eschatology. Because God has given Israel all these advantages, and then they rebelled. So he says, starting in verse 4, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because they rejected the law of the Lord. There it is. They rejected my covenant. I took them to Mount Sinai. I brought Moses up there. I brought him down with ten rules, 613 ordinances. I spoke to Israel in a way that I never spoke to any other group of people, and I formed a bond, a covenant with them. So for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they rejected the law of God, and they have not kept his statutes. Their lies have led them astray. What do your other translations have there for their lies? Because the word, the Hebrew word, can also be a reference to false idols. The word means falsehood. And so he may very well be saying that the idols that they believed in as part of the lie, as part of the falsehood of who they were and the way that they uh, executed their religion. All of that has led them astray, led them away from God, those after which their fathers walked. In other words, this going astray started very, very early, which is why, as I mentioned a few moments ago, in Ezekiel, God refers to the children of the house of Judah and the house of Israel as two whoring sisters in Egypt. And so soon as God formed them as a nation, he saw them as two erring siblings right from the beginning. So the fathers in Israel began rebelling very early on, early on enough that during their 40 years in the wilderness, the first generation out of Egypt didn't get to go to the promised land because of their rebellion at the foot of the mountain while they were getting the law from God. They're down there making a golden calf and dancing around and Aaron saying, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. So right away, the rebellion begins. So the lies, their lies, have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. As a consequence, verse 5, so I will send fire upon Judah. This is the same language he's been using on all of these foreign nations, all these Gentile nations. And I can only imagine that when Amos, this is just Jim's imagination at work, but when Amos, coming from the south, as he did, coming from south of Judah, and then going all the way up into the northern tribal area, and, and, and there he is, prophesying God's judgment against Gentile nations. And I can only assume that the people listening to him were going, we're with you, Amos. You get those Gentiles. You tell them something. And then he turns his gaze to Judah. And because he's up in the north, I figure they're going, yeah, those darn Judahites, they're bad, aren't they? And then he's going to turn his attention to them and just lay out this litany of sins that God has against them. And it's no wonder that they rejected him outright. Because he ends up at Bethel telling the very people who are worshiping a golden calf in Bethel. That they are terribly guilty before God for not keeping his rules, not keeping his laws. And for being taken in by lies. Anyway, as a consequence, God is going to send fire upon Judah and it will consume the towers, the citadels, the fortresses of Jerusalem. That very thing, by the way, happened in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar came storming in. 
and uh, not only destroyed the temple, but took two different waves of Judahites into Babylon. In the first wave, the first deportation, he took the educated, the rich, the powerful. That's Daniel's crown. And then came back for the, the leftovers. That's the time of Ezekiel. That's Ezekiel with that second wave of deportees when he has his visions and says, I was by the river Chebar and God showed me this vision. And so sure enough, the very thing that God said through Amos to these people who are rejecting it, that very thing happened. Which gives me a good deal of confidence that the rest of what Amos says is going to happen is going to happen. Because by the time we get to chapter 9, God's saying, I'm going to restore Israel. I'm going to set up a kingdom. I'm going to regather Israel. I'm going to bring you back to your land. The same thing that all the prophets say. And if he's right on the 99% that has already happened, I figure that 1% that's dangling out there, that was a very round number. I have no idea if it's 99 versus 1. But if... Everything that he has predicted historically has already taken place in a very literal, genuine fashion. Then I have to conclude that the stuff that hasn't happened yet is going to in a very literal, genuine, physical way. You get that? The reason I'm stressing that is for our listeners on the Internet who, again, when they deal with eschatology and they deal with the future for Israel, turn that into the church and say, it's not a physical thing. It's not about geography. It's not about the land in the Middle East. It's not about that people group. This is all about the church. But everything that Amos says is about Israel and Judah, Israel and Judah, Israel and Judah, including all of the curses which actually happen in time. And so when I hear Jesus say that there's a time of trouble coming for Israel and Judah, and harkens it back to Daniel, connects it to Daniel and his people and his temple and his city, well, then I have to assume that he's still talking about Israel and Judah. And so it still is going to be a literal, physical, genuine punishment and restoration of Israel. I don't know how to read it any other way and let it remain consistent with the Bible. You get all that? Am I just talking to myself tonight? Okay. If at any point I'm just talking to myself, just stand up and say goodnight. Just take off. We're done here. So after verse 5, when he says, I'll send fire on Judah and it's going to consume the fortresses, the citadels of Jerusalem, he then turns his attention to the house of Israel. And that takes us to verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel... And for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Most of the things that they are doing that he lists here, he lists seven things that they're guilty of, and most of the things that he's going to list here are directly opposed to the law, whether in the Ten Commandments, in the ordinances, they're, they're direct rebellions against the Word of God. So we're going to look at a few of those. For instance, somebody look up Deuteronomy 15, and you're going to read a pretty good section for us. Because here's the first thing he lists. This is a contrast. Because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Now, that's a tad cryptic, so let me tell you what that's about. He's talking to the high and mighty. He's talking to the leaders in Israel. He's talking to the wealthy, to the rich. And the way that they would mistreat their brethren for money is in direct opposition to the rules, to the law that God set down for the kind of society that Israel was supposed to be. The first thing he says is that they would sell, in the NASB it says righteous, it just means the honest people, the forthright people, the trustworthy people in the society. And if they had any kind of debt... Rather than let them pay back the debt, remembering that they are honest, forthright people, they're going to pay the debt back. Instead, they would sell them for silver, sell them for money. And then even worse, the needy who might have some minor debt, a debt so minor that it's worth maybe a pair of sandals. 
would sell them into, into slavery, would sell them into debt prison, and they would sell the needy for a pair of sandals. Okay, so this is a form of real uh, societal oppression, monetary oppression, keeping the poor poor, keeping the rich rich, and even though that's the way that the world works, it's not how Israel was supposed to work. Israel, being a theocracy, being God's chosen separate people, were supposed to be different than that. So different, in fact, that they could walk by the rule of Deuteronomy 15. Is somebody there? I want you to read 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, whoever's got it. You got that, Jeff? You there? If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother. But you shall freely open your hand to him, and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware, lest there is a base thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the, re the year of remission is near, and your eye is hostile towards you, poor brother, and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin against you. It will be a sin in you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and, and the poor in your land. That's part of the Deuteronomical law. And the particular thing that was pointed out about the seven-year thing there is that you had your years every seven years, and then every seven, seven years, you'd have the year of Jubilee, and then everything would go back to its rightful owner. And so if somebody was just broke, just down on their luck, and came to someone and said, I need to borrow from you, then he says, if you know that that Jubilee is coming around where the debts are all wiped out, don't harden your heart against him just because you know that in a few years the debt's going to get wiped out. Instead, still be generous and give to him simply because he has a need and because he's your brother. And because Israel is supposed to be different than everybody else, but they acted just like the world. And uh, the love of money being the root of all kinds of evil, next thing you know, they're selling their brethren for debts. Sometimes for silver, sometimes just for a pair of sandals. Verse 7 is similar. This is interesting language. Those who pant is the word, and it's a, a literal translation of the Hebrew word, but it means those who long for, those who, who desire. Those who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless. Do you see that picture? Those who want to pour dirt on the head of the poor. Those kinds of people who pant after pouring the dust of the earth on the head of the helpless, who also turn aside the way of the humble, and a man and his father resort to the same woman in order to profane my holy name. So not only are these people guilty of using their riches and their power to keep the poor down and to abuse and to misuse the poor and even sell their brethren in order to make themselves wealthy, but they also are guilty of, much worse, they're guilty of sexual sin. Now, we don't know here if this is a reference to temple prostitutes, which were fairly common in that area of the world. We don't know if we're talking about concubines here. But he says something that is going on in Israel at this point is that a man and his father are both having sex with the same woman. And notice what he says about it. It profanes my holy name. Let's talk about that word profane for a moment. Because to this day, it has worked its way into our popular culture. And if somebody says a, a dirty word, we call it a profanity. But in the Bible, genuine profanity means to not cherish the things of God. For instance, there's a reference in the New Testament to that profane person Esau. And it's not that Esau walked around cussing like a sailor. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that he was willing to sell his inheritance for a mess of pottage, for some soup, something to eat. So he didn't cherish the things of God. Instead, he was tied to these earthly things, and that made him profane. 
And that's why the things of this world, the things that are not righteous, the things that are not holy, the things that are not good or pure, those are profane things. Think how awful it is for the very name of God, which not only is a commandment, you will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, but when Jesus teaches his apostles to pray, puts that right at the top of the prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your name is holy. Your name is righteous. We should never, ever take your name in any form of vanity. And here God says, when you act like that, you profane my holy name. Why? Because they're Israel. They're the people of God. They're the separate chosen nation. The whole rest of the world knows these are the people of God. These are the people that God chose. And look how they're acting. They're acting just like the rest of the world. Apparently, their God is not very different than all the others because they're not any different than all the others. And it, it makes the very holy name of God a common thing, a profane thing. So, when people act with this kind of sexual impurity, it profanes the very name of God. Also, by the way, it's, it's in the law over and over again. There are rules in the law. Somebody, by the way, look up Deuteronomy 16, 19, because there is one more I want you to look at real quickly, having to do with justice for the oppressed. But there are many rules in the law about not uncovering the nakedness of a family member. And the law goes into quite a bit of detail that a father is not to uncover the nakedness of a daughter or a, or a niece, and that a man is not to uncover the nakedness of his father's wife. And yet, despite those kinds of rules, here you have people in Israel where a man and his father are both having sex with the same woman. I think the reason that that's included is to show you just the, the real depth of their depravity. Because not only is that an intrinsically profane thing to do, but God has already said, don't do it. It's already in the rules. Deuteronomy 16, 19. Somebody got that? That's another, this is another one of these rules about not keeping the oppressed down. What have you got there? You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eye of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. So when you judge, you're supposed to judge righteously. You're not supposed to show preference or partiality. You're not to take a bribe. And yet these people were willing to sell the rich or the poor. And they did all of this in order to aggrandize themselves, which he's going to get to. The next thing they do, verse 8, again, just a, a very different culture, so we don't feel the offense of this. But it says that, on garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. There are very specific rules in the law. Let's see if I've got any notes on some of these rules. Yeah, somebody look up. Tom, you look up Exodus 22, 26 and 27. You want to look up something there, Micah? Look up Deuteronomy 24, 10 to 13. Oh, I've got one more we could look at just because it's interesting. Who wants to read a verse from Job? Meg, you want to read? Sure. Okay, Job 22.6. You have to talk really loud from back there, though. Okay. Job 22.6 is where you're looking. All of these rules have to do with the fact that usually a person only owned one cloak, which was an outer garment. And in any kind of desert region, the outer garment kept the sun off you during the day. But anybody who's spent any time in the desert knows it gets really cold at night. So your cloak kept you warm at night. And so if a cloak was taken as a pledge, which means uh, if you borrow money from somebody and you give them something to hold on to till you pay it back, basically a pawn, well then if you take their cloak, you have to give it back to them by sundown. You can't take a cloak for a pledge because it's his life. It's what keeps him going. And we're going to see a couple of rules that say that very thing. 
Meanwhile, what they were doing was they were taking garments as pledges and then they would stretch them out and lay on them in front of their altars like there was nothing wrong with what they were doing. They would go to worship and even go and sleep before their altars laying on the garments of poor people that they had taken from them. Despite the rules that say things like Exodus 22, 26, and 27, which says, If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? For if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. This is such a big deal that God says, if, if you take somebody's cloak as a pledge and don't give it back and he cries to me, I'll hear that. Because God recognizes that this is a necessity for the body. Micah, Deuteronomy 24, read 10, 11, 12, and 13. We'll read the whole thing. Deuteronomy 24, you don't remember what I said. Short-term memory loss. You're very young for that kind of memory loss. Deuteronomy 24, verses 10, 11, 12, 13. Four verses. When thou dost lend thy brother anything, thou shalt not go into, the, into his house to fetch his pledge. Thou shalt stand abroad... And the man to whom thou dost lend shall bring out the pledge abroad unto thee. Hang on. First off, if you take something from your brother as a pledge, he says, because you're different than the world, because you're brothers, you don't go to his house, barge in, and take it. In fact, the rule says you have to stand outside and wait till he brings it out to you. So he has to agree to give it to you. These are very gentlemanly exchanges. Keep reading. And if the man be poor, thou shalt not sleep with his pledge. In any case, thou shalt deliver him the pledge again when the sun goes down, and he may sleep in his own raiment, and bless thee, and it shall be righteousness unto thee before the Lord thy God. So he says, if you take a man's cloak as a pledge, and he's a poor man, you can't keep it till sundown. And don't sleep in it, whatever you do. And so right here, and on the garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. That is a direct opposition to what the law says to do. Can you see why God is getting irritated with these people? God is saying real specific things. And whatever you do with a poor person, don't take their cloak as a pledge. If you do give it back by that night, not only are they taking it, they're flaunting it. And there's an interesting one in Job 22.6. Megan will read for us. For you have taken pledges from your brother for no reason and stripped the naked of their clothing. So all the way back there, one of the signs of guilt is when people would take a poor person's clothing, leaving him naked, when in fact you should be covering your brother because after all, he is your brother. Carrying on as if that weren't bad enough. God says, and in the house of their gods, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. In other words, they impose these heavy fines on the poor. And when the poor bring them things like wine, wine being a commodity of exchange, things like grain, clothing, wine, they would bring them wine, and then what would they do with that wine? They would go use it in the celebration, the bacchanalias, the feast, to their foreign idols. Does it get much worse? So I'm going, to, I'm going to defraud my brother. I'm going to sell him into slavery unless he pays me. And then if he pays me with his cloak, I'm going to sleep on his cloak in front of the altar of my God. And when he gives me wine for his debt, I'm going to use it to celebrate my idol. Can you see why God's a little irritated? Verse 9. Now God is going to lay out his case for who he is. Yet... It was I who destroyed the Amorite before Israel. Though his height, the Amorite's height, was like a height of cedars, and though he was strong like oak trees, I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. God creating a little analogy there and saying, 
that the Amorite that was in the land when he brought Israel into the land, brought them out of Egypt and brought them to the land of Canaan, God says, I'm the one that fought for you against the Amorites, and they were stronger than you and bigger than you and more powerful than you, and I beat them down so bad that if I liken them to a tree, I took down the fruit and the branches and I pulled them up by the root. I did all that. And then he says, verse 10, and it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And I led you in the wilderness for 40 years that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. Then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Do you remember what Nazarites are? Exactly. These are people who took a vow of chastity and purity before God. Some lived their lives as Nazarites. Some would do it for a short time as a vow, as a pledge before God. So in other words, these were people who were so taken with God that they would separate themselves from, from society and even from caring for their own bodies, and they wouldn't cut their hair. John the Baptist was sort of like the ultimate Nazarite, living in caves and eating honey and stuff. So, so you've got prophets. God has sent you prophets, and some of your people were Nazarites. These were the good people. These were the ones that were the godly people in your midst. And what did you do to them? I raised up some sons to be your prophets and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? In other words, didn't I do all those things? But you, but you made the Nazarites drink wine. In other words, you made them break their vow. They made vows to me to honor me. And you were so put out by having holiness in your midst that you would persuade them to break their own vow. And you commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. And this, of course, is consistent. Every time God would send prophets to Israel and they would prophesy against Israel, what did they do according to Jesus? We've been reading it on Sunday mornings. Jesus said, you who kill the prophets. Every time God would send them, somebody who would tell them to return to God and that God was angry and judgment was coming, rather than repent, rather than change their ways, they'd just get rid of the prophet. All the way up to Jesus. So, you made the Nazarites to drink wine. You commanded the prophet, saying, you shall not prophesy. Behold, you're weighted down like a wagon that is weighted down when it's filled with sheaves. Now, there's a couple different ways that this is read. I just read it the more common way. The NASB has it like this. Behold, God speaking first person, I am weighted down beneath you as a wagon is weighted down when it's full of sheaves. The picture being when a wagon has a heavy load on it, the wagon gets weighed down. Very hard to move it when it gets too heavy. And there's some question in the various translations about the pronoun, whether God is saying, now you are weighed down by all your sin and your guilt, or whether it's God saying, I am weighed down, kind of the same way that Paul writes in Romans 2, I think it is, where he says that they hold down, they suppress righteousness, they hold it down in their unbelief. Yes? My version of it says that he will crush them as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. Right, that's another reading of it, that he then will crush them the way that a cart is crushed when you put a heavy load on it. I see. Yeah, so as you can tell by the various translations, the Hebrew is not real exact there. In any case, God is mad and God is going to judge them. And here's what the judgment's going to look like. Verse 14 if you're a swift person, if you're fast, if you're fleet of foot, that's not going to help you because flight will perish from the swift. If you're one of these persons who's a, a stalwart and you have a great deal of power within yourself, you think you're very strong by yourself, and the stalwart will not strengthen his power. If you're a mighty man, strong in battle, good with a sword, nor the mighty man will save his life. He who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape. Nor will he who rides the horse 
save his life. Even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. So the time of punishment is coming. Now, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, and we're about done here, these punishments that God has doled out on Israel historically, I referred to them as temporal punishments because they were effective for a moment, a moment in time. And they became increasingly dramatic as Israel's sin increased so that ultimately you do get like the Babylonian captivity, but then they are returned to their land. In the case of the northern tribes into the Assyrian captivity, have not returned to their land. But the southern tribe had to return to their land long enough for Messiah to come because we know that the Messiah had to come through Judah. So Judah had to remain intact till Messiah came. Once Messiah came, he predicted that ultimately their house would be left to them desolate. And that takes us to 70 A.D., And they've been scattered ever since. But God is not going to leave them in that scattered position. While they were scattered, while they were out of their land, they've lost their sense of who they are. Many of them have lost their tradition. Many of them have lost their heritage. You don't see a lot of people walking around today claiming to be of the tribe of Gad. You just don't meet people who say, hi, I'm Bob the Gadite. They've lost their sense of who they are. Bob, really good old ancient Israeli name, Bob, Bob the Gadite. You just don't see a lot of that. Now, you do see Jews. There are still plenty of Jews in the world. They're identifiable, and they're keeping the religion going because God has got to keep a remnant going. And so 1948, after World War II, Israel is reestablished as a nation, and Jews from around the world have been making their way back into Israel setting the stage for what God is ultimately going to do because he is going to bring a final world ruler on the stage who at some point has to profane the temple, which means that there has to be a temple for him to profane. And in order for there to be a temple in Jerusalem, there have to be Jews in Jerusalem. And so God, who's in control of human history, is controlling it yet again. And we're watching it happen in our own lifetimes as God is setting the stage for the things he is still going to do with Israel. You get all that? So we'll start in chapter 3 next week. And chapter 3, verse 2 says, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. That's kind of the, the root, the core of all of this, is that God is saying to Israel, out of all the families, all the people, all the nations of the earth, you're the only ones I chose. And because I chose you, You have a higher responsibility, and that's why I'm going to punish you for all your iniquities. And he knows what they are, and he lists them, and he's been keeping track. He's been keeping score. They are completely and utterly guilty before him. And if God punished people for what they deserve, then Israel would be a goner. There'd be no Israel, but there'd be no Carol. There'd be no body. There'd be no human who had any hope if God always dealt with people according to what they deserve. And the same God who has been remarkably gracious to Carol is the same God who has said over and over and over again that he is going to be gracious to Israel. And I think we need to embrace that and recognize that if we are that dependent on the grace and sovereignty of God for our salvation, we certainly shouldn't deny that to the only people God ever chose on the planet. Right? Right, sir. All right, good. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.